It's TechBiter Worldwide for the week of November 23rd, 2008. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in far less than an hour because we leave out the sports, the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. And first, we have a quick programming note. Because of the Thanksgiving holiday, TechBiter Worldwide will be taking a break next week, so that'll give you something else you can be thankful for. Juggernaut. Now, there's a word you don't hear very often. In fact, I don't think I've ever uttered that word on TechBiter Worldwide, and that covers a 15-year history of the program. In fact, I'm not sure that I've ever said juggernaut more than a couple of times in my entire life. So that alone may say something about what's going to follow. Adobe recently released Creative Suite 4, and for the past three or four weeks I've been trying to devise an analysis and review process that will do justice to this gigantic series of applications that range from publication design with InDesign and Acrobat to photo editing with Photoshop, sound editing with Soundbooth, and video editing, Premiere and After Effects. I'll also want to examine what's new in the Vector Graphic Program, Illustrator, and, of course, the website development tools, Dreamweaver, Flash, and Fireworks. And besides that, there are various other components included in the package. What I can say is the Adobe Juggernaut continues. The company is now well-positioned with products for every kind of media, audio, video, web, and print. So regardless of which way communications goes over the next several years, Adobe is probably going to be there. Now, the only way I could accomplish this review in a single episode would be to extend TechBiter Worldwide to perhaps an all-day program. So what I've decided to do is select one component to highlight on each of several programs over the next couple of months. As much as I would like to do it sooner and faster, there just isn't any way for one person to review that many complex applications, do it right, and do it on an accelerated schedule. In doing a little research prior to getting started, I think I was just trying to avoid getting started, I answered one of the nagging questions I've had for a decade or more about Adobe. Specifically, why a mud house? Why would a couple of guys from the Xerox Palo Alto Research Center name their company after mud houses? Well, as it turns out, that's not what happened. Adobe Creek ran behind John Warnock's house in Palo Alto, Warnock and Charles Greshke founded the company in December 1982. They had developed the PostScript page description language. That is the foundation on which all modern publishing is based. So it was Adobe Creek, not a bunch of mud houses. Over the years, Adobe has acquired a lot of other companies. They picked up Aldus years ago, the company responsible for PageMaker and After Effects. That was back in 1994. In 1999, Adobe acquired GoLive Systems and launched its own version of GoLive to compete with Macromedia's Dreamweaver website development suite. Then, Adobe acquired Macromedia in 2005 to bring the best website development tool in-house. That pretty much ended GoLive. Prior to that, Adobe had picked up Centrillium Software and its Audition program, which led to Adobe Soundbooth. Soundbooth doesn't replace Audition but it's a program with fewer features and one that lends itself to use by people who aren't audio production professionals. So Soundbooth is in addition to Audition. Adobe Creative Suite 4 comes in three versions. There is Design Premium, 
for web, audio, video, and print, production premium for audio, video, and print, and web premium, the web components. Regardless of which of those packages you select, you will get Adobe Bridge. That is one application that ships with everything. As I mentioned a few weeks ago, many photographers may choose to use Adobe Lightroom 2 in place of Bridge, but Bridge is there if you need it, and you probably will because there are some features in Bridge that aren't available in Lightroom 2. Fortunately, there's a lot of good information about how to use the new programs on Adobe's website. They have an Adobe TV section. And in about half an hour, Adobe's Julianne Cost reveals Bridge's new features. And there are some new features, but not a huge number. The development team's primary goal with CS4 was to make Bridge easier to use, not to add a bunch of new features. But one of the nicest new features is the ability to create a web gallery or a PDF document that would be essentially a contact sheet of your photos. In testing, I created a web gallery from some pictures that I made this fall at several of the metro parks around town. And you can see that. There's a link to it from the TechBiter Worldwide website. It's really a pretty sophisticated presentation, and it took virtually no effort on my part. Well, except for going out and taking the pictures. Another major enhancement is speed. Bridge is now faster and supports directories with hundreds or even thousands of images without gasping or breathing too hard. On your first pass through a group of new photos, you may be looking primarily for composition so that you can call the clearly unacceptable images. So in this case, you can tell Bridge to give preference to speed over image quality. Later, after you've narrowed the field and you begin to assess the quality of individual images, you'll want to pump up the quality so that you can judge that, too. Bridge's search function now works with Spotlight if you have a Mac or with the desktop search tool if you're using a Windows machine, and it allows you to create what are essentially virtual directories that contain images from several physical directories. This is really neat. It's essentially a database application because Bridge creates pointers to the original files and stores these as collections. You don't have to duplicate an image all over the drive just because you need the same image in two or three projects. You don't have to have the image in all those directories. Have the image in one directory and have pointers to it from the other directories. In addition to digital image files, Bridge will also display and organize files from other Adobe applications. So the name Bridge is most appropriate. Creative Suite 4 did not come without problems. I always seem to have problems installing Adobe applications. I'm not quite sure why that is. Maybe it's just me. When I tried to install under Vista, I got an installation application error. Well, the next step with Vista always involves running as administrator, even though my account has administrator privileges. Well, that didn't work either. So then I tried drilling down and finding the actual installer file, not the auto-run file, and running that as administrator. It also failed. The installation application tried to offer some help, but was never able to provide any real assistance. And there was no information yet on the Adobe website, probably because CS4 is still so new. Nothing there that resolved the problem. So I picked up the phone and called Adobe Support. Now, I didn't identify myself as a journalist. I just called as a regular user. Adobe Support is usually good, and this was no exception. The first person I spoke with quickly gathered enough information to determine what program I had and what the primary problem was, then directed me to a technician who was able to work on that specific area. So then I explained the steps that I'd already taken, and the technician, understanding that I could handle some of the troubleshooting on my own, provided a clear and concise set of instructions.
The instructions followed the essential format of try this, if this doesn't work, do that, and if that doesn't work, do this. Wanting to save as much time as possible, I did all of the steps. Installing CS4 might not have required doing everything, but I decided that I preferred a one-shot fix rather than trying to sneak up on the solution. So I copied the installation files to the hard drive, created a new user called Adobe Installer, and gave that user administrator privileges, rebooted the machine, logged on as the Adobe Installer, and ran the installation program. Problem solved. In a couple of weeks, probably the first program after Thanksgiving, I'll have a review of Adobe Photoshop. Now's the time to be really careful with your email. With the economy in shambles, every crook and his brother, and possibly even his sister, seems to be running a phishing scam. This week I received one that claimed to be from the IRS, telling me about an economic stimulus check that I had to register for. Well, the first clue that this was going to be bogus, other than knowing that the IRS isn't sending out any economic stimulus payments right now, was the fact that the email came from a domain in Canada. The IRS is located in Washington, D.C., right here in the good old United States. The message was flagged by Sender Policy Framework because the domain IRSGov has declared using SPF that it does not send mail through smtp-relay2h.uniserve.canada and an IP address. Well, SPF is an extension to Internet email. It prevents people from forging an email address by allowing users to specify the IP address of the server that send mail is on. If a message claims to be from the IRS and it's not from the right IP address, it is assumed to be fraudulent. Now, the thing is, SPF could essentially halt spam and phishing if everybody would just start using it. There is no central institution that enforces SPF, but the IRS had specified its IP address, and when the message arrived from the wrong IP address, it was quickly rejected. So under normal circumstances, I wouldn't have even seen this message. Well, I decided to look anyway, and the message told me, and I quote, After the last annual calculations of your fiscal activity, we have determined that you are eligible to receive a stimulus payment. Please submit the stimulus payment online form in order to process it. A stimulus payment can be delayed for a variety of reasons. For example, submitting invalid records or applying after the deadline. To access the form for your stimulus payment, please click here. Note, for security reasons, we will record your IP address, the date, and time. Deliberate wrong inputs are criminally pursued and indicated. Yes, they did say indicated. Clicking the link would, of course, not have taken me to the IRS. It would have instead taken me to a specific IP address. By the time I got around to checking the URL, it had already been taken down. The IP address belongs to fstcs.com, which may or may not have anything to do with the fish. It's possible that someone simply stored rogue code in the subdirectory, but the fact that the root directory wasn't accessible isn't a particularly good sign. The site is hosted in Chicago by fdcservers.net, a company that apparently acted quickly and removed the bogus site. And speaking of fish, here's an uncommonly stupid one. Sometimes I receive a fish that is just so astonishingly stupid that all I can do is stare at it in disbelief. That happened on Thursday of this week when a spam fish arrived from the United Postal Service, a company that does not exist. United Postal Service, the address info at ups.com. Now, either it's the United Parcel Service or the U.S. Postal Service. There's no such thing as the United Postal Service. 
So, quick memo to the scammer, if you're going to try something like this, at least get the name of the company right. And, of course, the message itself had certain errors in it. For example, they told me that they weren't able to deliver my postal package, and I had to come pick it up. They didn't bother to tell me where I had to come pick it up. And then they told me to print out the form that was attached in a zip file. That would, of course, been something that, had I opened it, would have tried to damage my computer. But it said in the message that if I do not receive the package in 10 days, I will have to pay $36 per day, formatted as $36 sign. Well, in the U.S., we put the dollar sign to the left of the number. So this continues to be a time to be careful when you're looking at your email. In early news, I feel sorry for Jerry Yang. Almost. Just a few months ago, Jerry Yang could have said okay and sold Yahoo to Microsoft. Most of the stockholders seemed to want the deal to go through. Yang didn't. He refused Microsoft's offer, and then, with Yahoo's share price around one-third of what Microsoft had offered, he said the best deal for Microsoft would be to buy Yahoo. That deep, rumbling chuckle you heard from the Northwest was Microsoft, the whole company. No deal, no way. Well, then Yang announced he would step down as CEO. Yahoo's stock immediately rebounded by about 9% the next day, but then quickly fell back to where it had been. So now Yahoo has no CEO. Companies have pulled back on advertising. Yahoo's revenues continue to fall. Yahoo has failed to keep up in the market that it was instrumental in creating. And meanwhile, Google has become the search engine of choice. Yahoo hasn't done much with photo sharing. It does have a website called Flickr. And it isn't in the social networking biz at all. There is speculation that Microsoft will eventually own Yahoo, but if so, it'll be at fire sale prices. The company does still have value, and really a lot of value. It probably does make sense for Microsoft to acquire the company, probably more at $10 a share, or less, instead of $33 a share. It may not be exactly the end of the line for paper manufacturers, ink manufacturers, press manufacturers, and the United States Postal Service, but if you're in any of those businesses, you're in about the same position as the manufacturers of harnesses in the early 1900s. If you were paying attention back then, you could see that your business had a limited future. The Christian Science Monitor will lead the way among newspapers in dropping its print version. For magazines, the high-profile leader, to nobody's great surprise, is going to be PC Magazine. For several years, the magazine has made most of its profits from web operations, and the magazine has been largely an afterthought. The January issue will be the last PC Magazine will print. Advertising revenue is down. Costs of ink, paper, press operators, and postage are all up. A web-only version eliminates all of those costs and leaves only the writers and designers to pay. PC Magazine is ahead of the curve because it is already essentially a web operation. Other magazines still get most of their money from selling those physical magazines. The formula will change for the other magazines, too, just not as quickly. Other smaller publications have already announced that they plan to end print editions, but PC Magazine is by far the largest and most visible magazine to make that move. Print subscriptions are down. In the late 1990s, circulation hit 1.2 million issues, but now the magazine's advertising base rate is about half that. As a result, ad rates are down, and exacerbating the problem, the number of advertisers is declining, too. And here's another end-of-the-road story. Chipmaker Transmeta was one of the promising stories that I followed for several years. The company was always at the PC Expo in New York City with its low-energy PCs that could run significantly longer and cooler than Intel or AMD processors, 
The Crusoe chip extended battery life, and its server blades were far more power-efficient than those from the big guys. But the Crusoe CPU never really caught on, and now Nova 4 will buy Transmeta. $256 million. A bargain. In the mid-1990s, Transmeta and its Crusoe chip was a serious rival to Intel's Pentium, or so it seemed. The company was backed by financier George Soros, Microsoft co-founder Paul Allen was involved, and even Linus Torvalds, the guy responsible for Linux, worked there for a while. For the past several years, Transmeta hasn't developed or sold any CPUs. Instead, the company has done little more than license its intellectual property to its former competition. Nova Fora is a semiconductor company without a plant or a product. That's right, it's a semiconductor company, no plant, no product. Maybe by next year it'll make its first digital video microprocessors, and it apparently sees some value in the work Transmeta has done on Crusoe. The goal, according to Novafora, is to develop a processor that requires much less power to run than anything currently on the market. And if anybody is in a position to do that, it's the guys at Transmeta. That's it. Remember, no show next week, back the week after Thanksgiving. Thanks for listening. This has been TechBiter Worldwide for the week of November 23rd, 2008. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Happy Thanksgiving. See you in a couple of weeks.